Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and everything else. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, author of the new young adult space fantasy novel, Victories Greater Than Death. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, a new book about archaeology and ancient cities. So you might have noticed I just described Victories Greater Than Death as a space fantasy, and that's how I've been talking about the book a lot. So in this episode, we're going to talk about space fantasy. What is it? How is it different from, like, space opera? And why is it cool to put fantasy tropes together with space stuff? And in the second half of the episode, we'll be talking all about my brand new young adult book, Victories Greater Than Death. Let's dive in! started talking about this a little bit in the intro, Charlie Jane, but I'm wondering if you could start us off by just explaining what is space fantasy? Like, where has this term been my whole life? So space fantasy, I feel like there's two different ways to define space fantasy, like a broad way and a narrow way. So the narrow (laughs) definition of space fantasy, (laughs) Broadway space fantasy, just has. I actually really want to see A Broadway space fantasy. I really want that now. Oh my God, I really want (laughs) that. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue into the wide definition. So, well, so the narrow definition of space fantasy is basically if it really has like a lot of the explicit trappings of a fantasy, like there's wands and there's wizards and there's like ancient prophecies and castles and creatures that are basically orcs and like dragons. And like, if you can like basically look at it and be like, okay, this is just Lord of the Rings, but we've put it in space then that's the narrow definition of space fantasy. And the classic example of that is probably Star Wars, which has wizards, has, like, a lot of, like, really explicit fantasy elements layered on top of, like, starships and planets and, you know, blasters and stuff. I would think that the broader definition of space fantasy, though, is, you know, more like any space opera where there's some kinds of magical elements and things that, you know, we might say that it's technology or science, but the explanation is basically hand-wavy and there's just like, it's basically magic. And where you have kind of broad fantasy elements like a struggle against ultimate evil, a hero who's kind of like singled out in some way, an epic quest, all the stuff that like is the underpinnings of fantasy that's kind of like what makes fantasy so fun. And I feel like a lot of space opera in the end kind of includes some kind of you know, fantasy feel to it. And there's, you know, there's actually a lot of overlap between the two. Well, so what would you say is the difference between space fantasy and space opera then? I would say that space opera as a genre is a little bit of a continuum. I think that the kind of swashbuckling adventure elements of space opera often lend themselves to a little bit of fantasy. And there is some fantasy in most space opera, but it's just, a, it's kind of a spectrum. It's like at the one end of the spectrum, you've got like things like The Expanse, which are pretty hard science fiction, but uh, do include the proto-molecule. Yeah, I was going to say. The case of the Expanse, <laughs> which is like... Where you have like people coming back from the dead and like, you know, glowing mm-hmm. um, sex aliens. I, I'm not sure how else to describe them. 
<laughs> I think that's a good description. You know, I think that the in the Expanse, I love the Expanse series, and I, I love how I love its commitment to rigorous mm-hmm. physics in most Same. areas. But then the the proto molecule is basically like a get out of physics free card. <laughs> yes. Like, anytime you want to like not have like totally realistic physics. Yeah, it it built all these doorways in space. Just just go with it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's sort of like we talked. We did a whole episode about Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which is like, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And what I ended up feeling is that actually the purpose of that is not to discredit magic in a fantasy setting, but to allow magic in a science fiction setting and say, well, it's it's advanced technology and we're not going to explain it. It's just, it basically works like magic. And like, you know, I think that, you know, Star Trek makes some attempts at having realistic physics, but also has like the warp drive and the transporter and other stuff that's kind of fantasy technology. It's kind of like, it's not, there's no scientifically plausible way that stuff could work. And then you actually go around meeting gods like Q and there's like a bunch of other gods who show up in Star Trek. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Star Wars, you've got Dune, where Dune really is an epic fantasy set in space, I would say. Uh, there's a manga series called Eden Zero, whose creator, Hiro Mashima, has described it explicitly as space fantasy. There's Warhammer 50K. Really, when we're talking about space fantasy as opposed to space opera, we're talking about a specific type of space opera that wears its fantasy elements on its sleeve proudly and just says, heck yeah, this is kind of a fantasy in space and you're we're just going to run with it. We're not going to like try to like pretend that everything here is completely like scientifically rigorous and we're going to just have fun with all the fantasy stuff of like swinging across a, a chasm that happens to be inside a space station and like, you know, having like magic wands that have nanotech or whatever. I think that the advantage is that you can just like acknowledge the fantasiness and revel in it. And I think that's really what I'd like to see more in popularizing this term space fantasy is the reveling in it. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about Nettie Okorafor's Binti series too in yeah. this context because again, that is a space opera that has strong elements of fantasy and magic. And the thing that's great in those books, and I think in some of the other stuff that you're talking about too, is that it allows you to bring in basically non-Western traditions into the storytelling. And to say like, hey, like it's not just about the chosen one from, you know, Western mythos. And the chosen one fits in really nicely with like a lot of ideas about science because like, the scientist, the great scientist is often kind of a chosen one figure. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting that like now, now that we're seeing a little bit more diversity in publishing, we're starting to get more really interesting, crunchy space fantasies, you know, not just like the dude with the glowing sword, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, okay. Tell me a little bit more about what you think is new about space fantasy. What's kind of coming up now that's really different from the kind of space operas we saw historically? You know, I would say that we're seeing a kind of a new wave of space opera, and some of it is very much influenced by The Expanse, where it's like trying to be grounded and realistic and gritty, and you have like things like Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series, which has a certain amount of, you know, realism about life in space and has like that kind of blue collar feeling, which you can't have a fantasy with a blue collar feeling for sure. No no question about that. But you're also seeing a, a lot of space opera coming along recently that just 
fully embraces the ridiculousness of it and just fully goes for broke. And, you know, you have animated shows like Steven Universe and She-Ra, which basically are fantasies, but they go into space all the time. And they're just like, yep, there's spaceships and there's like planets and, you know, aliens. But it's still basically a fantasy story about, you know, a chosen one and about magic and about, you know, gods and monsters and stuff. Star Wars is obviously making a huge comeback in the last, like, five years since Disney bought Lucasfilm and we've got like The Mandalorian and we've got a bunch of other Star yeah. Wars stuff coming along. I think we're going to be like up to our eyeballs in Star Wars soon and I'm actually super excited about that. You know, one of the most popular space operas of the last like decade and change is Battlestar Galactica, which got very mystical. And then you've yeah. got the Marvel Universe, where the Marvel Universe is basically like Thor is from another planet, but he's also a god and he's just constantly fighting mystical objects and, like, fighting frost giants and doing, like, Norse mythology stuff in space. And then Doctor Strange goes into space and Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of a giant fantasy. It's just a ball of, like, fantasy tropes in space. And, like, and then there's, like, young adult space opera, like my book, Victory is Greater Than Death, but also, like, things like Once in Future by uh, Corey McCarthy and Amy Rose Capetto, which is just, like, a straight-up Arthurian, like, Knights of the Round Table story, but in space. And like, I think, you know, I think people are realizing that there's a lot of fun to be had by just like going for broke with the fantasy elements in a space opera setting. Do you think some of this is coming from the fact that there's maybe more of a tolerance for genre blending now too? And that people maybe, maybe we've always been blending these genres because I think you're right that this is a tradition that goes back pretty far. But like now that we're admitting that we like want to have horror sci-fi and we want to have, you know, romance, fantasy, that suddenly it's kind of like, you know, actually it's okay if we have space fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think that Genre blending has definitely become a much bigger deal in the last, like, 10 years. It's funny because I started working on All the Birds in the Sky in, like, 2011, and I was like, oh, my gosh, putting sci-fi and fantasy together in a book, that's, like, such a big deal. And now I'm just like, yeah, I feel like that's everything now. Yeah. Like, I feel like in the last decade that I'm, I'm glad that book came out before everybody was just like, yep, fantasy and science fiction are just like a big swirly. They're just like when you go to the frozen yogurt place and they just like give you a swirly of two different flavors. Man, now I really want frozen yogurt. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like caramel and chocolate mm. or whatever. Or, yeah. Oh my Wait, God. which is, I mean, is stop talking fantasy, about frozen yogurt. the caramel or the chocolate? Oh, gosh. I mean, I want to know if science fiction is caramel or chocolate too. Like, I, this is, seems important. I feel like Science fiction is caramel because it's salted. Uh-huh. What well, doesn't have and to be salted? And also because science fiction contains caramel universes. Like when you go to a, a caramel universe uh-huh. and it's like everything is caramel. I don't know. <laughs> but and fantasy is definitely chocolate. Fantasy is wow. definitely, definitely chocolate. Wow. I feel like, I feel like this, need, this is like a sidebar that we need to have at some point. <laughs> Maybe we can talk oh about this in our audio extra. <laughs> We should definitely talk about this. Because <laughs> I, I feel like, I oh feel like science fiction is the chocolate. So, okay. Oh, my God. Let's leave aside. I haven't been to the frozen yogurt place in like over a year. And I'm, now I'm just like, frozen yogurt. Oh, my God. Topics. Okay, so this okay, is really so, all about so frozen yogurt. On. But the point moving is on. that. So, point is, genre blending has become a much bigger deal. You know, because superheroes have been just eating everything in media. And superheroes, the, the defining trait of superheroes is that they just like bust through genre dividers. Like yeah. they just like, they don't care. Like superheroes are like, oh yeah, we're fantasy, we're science fiction. 
we're horror. Oh yeah, whatever you want, we're it, you know? Mm-hmm. And superheroes don't care about genre. They're just like any genre that they want to be, they're just they just smush it all together. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a lot of a lot of the most popular series of the last decade have kind of taken different genres and just mashed them up in various ways. Mm-hmm. So leaving aside our important conversation and questions around chocolate, is it sci-fi or fantasy? Um, (laughs) I'm curious why you're so drawn to space fantasy. What is it that you love about it so much? I just think that the concept of space fantasy is really fun. Like I said before, I think that part of it is just being able to revel in how kind of ridiculous and non-scientifically plausible a lot of space opera is. But also, just like once you start acknowledging the extent to which Fantasy tropes are everywhere in space opera. A lot of fantasy tropes take on a new lease on life when you put them out in like space with planets and stars and galaxies and, mm-hmm. you know, spaceships. As soon as you sort of put your wizards and your kind of ancient gods and your monsters and your quests and your kind of magical objects into space, they just they get a different kind of feel to them because Space is really fun and exciting in its own right. And it's just, again, going back to the swirly metaphor, it's just like everything tastes better when you kind of smush them together like that. And I think that, you know, I love a kind of austere, you know, realistic, grounded, gritty space opera, like an Alastair Reynolds kind of space sure. opera, where everything is fairly plausible and you have to, a lot of attention to orbital mechanics and delta V and like all the physics of space. Well, flight. and also immortality. That, so it's not completely plausible. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's immortality via like suspended animation or, yeah. or whatever. It's so there's, when you get into the biology of it, it gets a little bit more, uh, a little bit less plausible perhaps. Uh, but, you know, I love that kind. I love the kind of Ian M. Banks culture books where those are kind of fantasies in the sense that the AIs are kind of gods in a weird way. Mm-hmm. But they also have a lot of, like, very plausible space opera stuff in them. But I also have just, like, a huge soft spot for swashbuckling, just gonzo, wild and woolly. Everything is just going haywire. And also, I think that when you infuse these fantasy elements into things, it just makes things more meaningful because it's like there are there's a purpose to it. Usually part of what's fun about an epic fantasy is that, you know, you have a heroic quest or whatever, and it just infuses everything with purpose. Like we have a noble goal Mm -hmm. and we are fighting against evil and we are on a path towards justice. And I think that part of when, what I love about fantasy in general is especially epic fantasy, that kind of sense of we are kind of moving in a direction of goodness. And like there is good and there is evil and we are going to fight for good. And I think that you could argue that that's very unrealistic, but it's also just a lot of fun. And it just kind of opens up a different side of space adventures, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking when you were talking about the kind of swashbuckling and the silliness, I was thinking about Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez, um, which is such um, a fun, goofy novel. It's a perfect example of space fantasy where, you know, it's realist. A lot of it is realistic. Like they're, you know, zooming around in spaceships, but it's, it's got just like all this silly stuff, silly aliens, like silly romantic encounters. It's got psychic cats. The psychic cats are like a major draw for a lot of people in those books, I think, yes. Oh, yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about was Gideon the Ninth, 
which has been such a big galvanizing force in space fantasy over the past couple of years. It's such a popular series. I'm thinking specifically of the first novel. I think Harrow the Ninth is a little bit more harrowing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Gideon the Ninth um, has a lot of silliness in it. And the narrator is kind of a goofball. And so it kind of lends itself well to that, that blended world, the swirly, as it were, the swirly of genre. Um, which makes it sound like we're swirly. dunking books in the toilet, um, <laughs> flushing their hair down the, the drain. We're, we're definitely not dunking books in the toilet, No, guys, we're, okay? we're anti-book you know, we swirly not, in that I, way. I don't have a book sitting in my toilet right now. It's not happening, no. I promise. So why don't we take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about your new novel. Okay, I am super excited about this because I, of course, have read this novel, Victories Greater Than Death. I read it in an early version. I read it in a final version. It's amazing. I love it. Obviously, I'm biased, but also I'm unbiased in the sense that, you know, I really found it to be delightful. And it is a perfect example of a space fantasy. So why don't you start by telling us about this book, which is the first in a trilogy, and the world and how it came to be. Yeah, so Victories Greater Than Death is a young adult uh, novel about a girl named Tina who has known for a few years now that she is actually the clone of an alien hero, and she was left on Earth as a baby. And when she's old enough, she has this rescue beacon inside her, and these aliens are going to come back and get her and take her away from Earth, and she's going to discover who she really is and where she really belongs and her true destiny and her heritage and all of that. And then, of course, the aliens do show up and take her away from Earth along with a few other human kids, and Tina starts to realize that her destiny is not what she was expecting. Nothing is quite what she was expecting, and, you know, it turns out that trying to live up to the legacy of this alien hero is actually kind of tough, and she has to really lean on her friends. That's kind of the thumbnail sketch, and it really, this book really came out of me thinking about when I was a teenager, and all I wanted, the only thing I, like, desperately craved was for aliens to show up and take me away from this planet. Like, I was just like, I'm sick of this planet. You know, this planet kind of sucks. I don't want to be a human being anymore. I just want to be up in space having awesome adventures. I want to be on the Enterprise or in the TARDIS or whatever. And just off, like, saving the galaxy and having fun and being with, like, my chosen family of cool alien and human people. I kind of started out with that wish fulfillment aspect. And then the thing about wish fulfillment, of course, is that the more you get into it, the more you have to complicate it and kind of, like, put barriers and obstacles in the way of just, like, getting the the pure wish fulfillment. But also you kind of interrogate it and, like, why is this a wish that I have? And, you know... What are the problems with it? What's the downside of it? So that's kind of what the book is. That's so interesting. I mean, I have to say the wishing that you were an alien is so relatable. And I think that, um, I mean, definitely a lot of us felt that way as teenagers. But I think anytime things are tough on Earth, it's, it's a thing that we feel in our hearts. Like, maybe I don't really belong here. Maybe I was put here by someone else and they're gonna come get me. So, okay, in the interest of science, Charlie Jane, I would like you to break down how much of this book is science fiction versus fantasy. I would like ratios. I would like charts. I would like graphs. 
Okay, I'm going to put up some pie charts in the show notes for this episode. <laughs> like lots of pie charts, like apple pie charts uh-huh. and blueberry. God, we're just talking about food today. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so I kind of started out having like a sense of like, I want this to be a proper space opera, which means that there's going to be some tech that is kind of hand wavy. There's going to be faster than light travel. There's going to be some stuff that is, you know, not really scientifically plausible, but we're going to make an effort to have scientific plausibility. And I did talk to Katie Mack, who's an astrophysicist that we know a fair bit about some of the sciencey stuff in the book. Friend of the show. We had her on. Yeah. We had her on the show. She's amazing. And that episode was so great. And I talked to, you know, Terry Johnson about the biology in the the book. And so I did talk to some science people and I did kind of show it to some folks and kind of do some research. And I tried to come up with like a consistent sense of the technology in the book and like how things work Mm -hmm. and came up with like my own ideas. Like, for example, instead of having like a transporter that, that teleports you instantly from the planet's surface up to the ship, there's a kind of super fast space elevator that still takes like two or three hours to get up from the surface of the planet to orbit. And it's got all sorts of limitations that I thought were really kind of fun and useful for the plot. And so things like that. And I came up with a lot of like different technologies and different things where I kind of have an explanation for them in the book, but the explanation is often a little bit hand wavy. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like, there was a version of it where it was kind of Star Trek-y. But I found that, you know, part of what made it fun for me and part of what made it kind of young adult feeling for me, because, you know, it's really true that even though there's a lot of great science fiction in young adult, young adult does tend to skew more fantasy as a general rule. And part of what made it feel like a fun young adult story for me was kind of like leaning into the fantasy elements a little bit more. So like there was actually a draft of the book, which I think you read, which started out feeling like a hundred percent like a fairy tale. Like, and I I love to kind of do these kinds of swerves sometimes. It started feeling like a fairy tale where like a mysterious old woman shows up and gives the main character a a magical necklace that turns out to actually be connected to her legacy as a space hero. And it's not a magical necklace. It's actually, you know, alien technology. And so I was like, we're going to start off feeling like a fairy tale and we're going to kind of swerve into that. And for various reasons, that had to go. That's not in the book anymore. There's no more magical necklace. But I did keep that in the back of my mind and sort of keep the kind of quest element and the kind of ancient gods and monsters. And there's a little bit of a feeling of prophecy in the sense that this character has this legacy that she's trying to follow up on. And there are things that she's trying to make sense of from her own past and things that she has to do in order to make things right that she has to understand. Yeah, she has a destiny. Like, she really She has does. a destiny. I mean, she struggles with it, but, like, there, because yeah. of who she's been, like, she has this role that she basically has to play. Yeah, and the more I leaned into that kind of, like, it's more of a feeling than a set of tropes in some ways, like, which is part of what mm-hmm. I was trying to get at earlier, where I'm like, it doesn't have to have orcs and wizards and, and spell books to necessarily be space fantasy. It's the feeling of, like, you are on an epic quest and there is ancient, horrible evil that you have to stand up against. And there are, there's basically a curse. Like, in a sense, a lot of the space opera backstory that I came up with for this book feels plausible to me as, like, a space opera thing of, like, the explanation of how these ancient aliens kind of did this weird eugenics prog- program across the galaxy. But it's also an ancient curse, and the ancient curse has to be understood and dealt with so that we can move forward. And so I kind of was working in those two different modes simultaneously. And I felt like that was a really fun way to kind of generate a lot of electricity by kind of playing those two things against each other. So what are some of the things that you feel like you were able to do because you were 
allowing yourself to think of this as space fantasy instead of space opera. I think that especially in the sequel, the second book of the trilogy, which is now done, thank goodness. <laughs> Yay! By the time you I can't wait to read it. You're hearing this, it's already with my editor and everything. Ooh. And, uh, you know, the second book, I definitely lean into this a little bit more in terms of stuff like there were ancient evil aliens who have, like I said, kind of put a curse on the galaxy. And I really lean into thinking of them as demons in the second book and thinking of them as kind of these weird, scary, they're a little bit Lovecraftian in a way, although obviously I have a lot of complicated feelings about Lovecraft like everybody. But there are these weird, scary, ancient elder gods who are kind of demonic. And then there are also these artificial intelligences that we spend a lot of time with in the second book. And I really lean into thinking of them as as like, as benevolent gods, benevolent, but somewhat unknowable and not always reliable and not always, their idea of good is not always our idea of good. They're kind of tricksters, I feel like. They're a little bit trickstery, yeah. And so thinking about it that way, and thinking, so once I was like, okay, in this universe, there are gods and there are demons and they are kind of in conversation with each other in some way, or like they're not actually working against each other, but they're, they are, they have different agendas. And then also just like, really leaning into the thing of, like, there are huge, massive stakes. Like, the fate of all of the worlds is at stake. And it's really down to this handful of teenagers, which, again, is, like, a very YA thing. You know, I feel like the more you have, like, something like in in Star Trek where you have Starfleet and there's, like, a ship with hundreds of people on it and they're all kind of doing their part and there's other ships out there and maybe the other ships will show up if things get really bad. And, like, there's just, like, there's an organization and we have discipline and structure and we're following procedures. And, you know, the more you lean into that aspect of it, the less it feels like a fantasy, even if you have a lot of fantasy elements, like gods showing up like they always do in Star Trek. And the more you have, like, nope, it's a handful of scrappy characters who are just making things work and doing things and and trying to, like, solve these ancient riddles and, like, stand up to these gods and demons and things, it immediately starts to feel more like a fantasy, which is part of why Star Wars is more fantasy and Star Trek is more a little bit more on the science-y side of things because of that kind of... And the first book definitely has a Starfleet-like thing, but it also manages to kind of pivot into these teenagers are the ones who are going to save the day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... so. But also just, like I said before, having fun with it, there's a certain nimbleness. There's a certain kind of like fun, just like, let's just go with this feeling of like, okay, this is going to be a little bit fantasy, which means we're not going to really stop to explain every single thing. And we're not going to get bogged down in really kind of the plausibility of every little thing. And, you know, and there are some cases where I did kind of come up with a thing in the second book that explained a mystery from the first book, and I came up with a thing that was just like an ancient, terrible curse. And then I went and called Kitty back and was like, how can I give this a scientific explanation? <laughs> what is the science and of ancient, terrible curse? <laughs> pretty much. And she helped me to figure it out. We actually ended up with something very scientifically plausible where I can like cite to papers if people really want that. Wow. Hopefully they won't want that. But at the same time, it's still an ancient, terrible curse. I want that. Wait, why aren't we allowed to want that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Anyway, because I doubt I completely got it right. Uh-huh. But I saw actually your event at Skylight Books in LA with uh, Sean Carroll, where he talked about being a consultant on the Avengers movies. Mm-hmm. And he said that when people ask him about the science of something, 
he doesn't interrogate whether that thing is really plausible. He instead says, okay, this is an observed phenomenon. This is new data. We have new data that this bizarre thing has just happened. How, what are our hypotheses for how this could have happened? Like he, he treats it as this is an observable fact. Mm-hmm. There is time travel. There is like Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet and there is all this other stuff. We're just going to like pretend that this is a new scientific discovery and we're going to explain it. I mean, it's a great way to approach this because that is literally how physics works. You know, a lot of physics is like, what the fuck just happened over there, you know, 20 million light years away? It's some kind of crazy gamma ray thing. Ah, and like, you know, how do we explain it? Or, or for example, how do we explain uh, all this gravitation that we observe that seems to be coming from nothing? Okay, let's just call it dark matter, you know? <laughs> we'll just... That'll be our placeholder. But I mean, dark matter is in a sense a kind of fantasy or magical idea because, of course, mm-hmm. it's I, my guess as a totally, as merely a physics observer is that we will discover that dark matter is really a bunch of different stuff. And, you know, it's it all kind of adds up to this, this matter that we can perceive but not perceive. Um, but it's not all like one thing. It's not like just a bunch of invisible goo that's exerting gravitational pressures um, or (laughs) gravitational forces. Um, So, okay, I wanted to ask you a final question, um, which is, this is your first young adult book, and I wondered how that felt. Like, what was it like? How did you have to um, change your voice or um, rethink how you would structure the story from when you've done your two adult novels? Yeah, it was a huge adjustment, actually. And, you know, even though a lot of people had said, oh, All the Birds of the Sky kind of starts out feeling like a YA. It kind of has a YA feel for a lot of its run. It was still a huge adjustment. And a lot of the adjustment was because I really wanted to capture that YA voice, that YA pacing. And that really required me to kind of rethink how I do books in a way. And it's, I think that, you know, I'm I'm going back to writing adult novels now, but I think it's that some of the stuff that I learned from this is going to stay with me. And, you know, I kind of spread out a bunch of YA books on the floor of my apartment and just sat in the middle of the floor looking at all these books and just tried to look at how they do the style and how they, what kind of writing style, you know, first person versus third person, present tense versus past tense, and just think about how they use voice and POV in different ways so I could try to kind of capture that. And, it really came down to creating a voice that was like funny and relatable and snarky and cute, but also very emotional, very passionate, and keep the story moving forward constantly, just like we're pushing forward. And like that pacing was like a huge thing. And I had definitely seen a lot of situations where adult authors whose books I'd loved, like are their adult books I loved, went into YA and didn't really understand what they what the differences were or what they were doing. And came up with something that was just disappointing, I thought, and that didn't end up appealing to teens or adults, I think. So I think that there's definitely a downside if you're not, if you don't approach it from a a real viewpoint of like respecting YA and loving YA and also just paying attention to the different needs of YA. And I was so lucky that Miriam Weinberg, who edited Victory's Greater Than Death, really kind of like, she very gently pushed me to kind of 
streamline the book in a lot of ways and pick up the pace. And the first like 40,000 words of the book ended up being more like 15, 20,000 words once I had revised it. Mm-hmm. And I cut out like the magic necklace that I mentioned earlier. I cut out a lot of stuff that was kind of making it slow down and bog down a little bit and just kind of picked up the the pace until it was like a much zippier book. At the same time, I found writing YA really liberating and freeing because I just felt way more open to having like the politics of the story be right on the surface, like not having to sugarcoat them like you do for adult readers because adult readers are a little bit like, they get scared off by anything that's too political or anything that's, you know, too challenging. And especially anything with queer themes, you have to kind of like, hold an adult reader's hand a little bit and be like, there, there, it's okay, don't worry, I'm going to walk you through this. It's okay, there's queer people, there's like, you know, politics about liberation, and it's okay, I'm, I, I'm with you, we're, we're going to get through this together. Whereas with teens, they're just like, give me the politics, give me the yeah. queerness. Yeah, it's funny how like, you know, I think the stereotype of teenagers in the world is that they're these vulnerable people who you know, need all this extra care and extra protection and the federal government has to come in and make sure their sports teams are like perfectly safe. And, you know, there's all this weird rhetoric, but in fact, teenagers are like radically accepting and they don't need all these caveats and this handholding that grownups need. And it's just, it's so interesting to me that turning a book into something that teenagers are going to love kind of means trusting the reader more in a sense. You know, it's about saying like, look, I know you can handle this. I don't need to give you 40,000 words of caveats. Like you can just dive right in, you know, and like, you're not going to freak out. And I just, I love that. And I, I love that like YA fiction kind of is constantly dispelling these myths about teenagers as being fragile. And I mean, of course they're fragile and vulnerable like anyone, but like that in a sense, when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to expressing themselves. They're just like, no, we've got this. Like, you you don't, (laughs) we don't really need your help. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing that was constantly in my mind was that the, the, the readers of this, of Victory's Greater Than Death, the, the target readership, and I should say this book is for everybody, but the target readership is people who grew up on the internet, who grew up with social media and, you know, it's their childhoods were radically different from yours and mine in a lot of ways. And like, but we both know kids who are just like in, you know, their early to mid-teens who are just like so much more up on this stuff than most adults we know. It's just amazing to hang out with them and just be like, oh yeah, half my friends are non-binary and trans, you know, of course I accept all these political things that adults are like, oh, well, I don't, I don't get you know, it's just yeah. like, I feel like it gives me hope hanging out with kids especially teenagers, really gives me hope right now. Mm -hmm. They're just so badass. And I feel like that's something that we need to start acknowledging more, especially as we're seeing all these, you know, teenage and like early 20s activists who are, you know, dealing with climate change and gun control. So anyway, it makes me really happy that your book is all about how teenagers can take things into their own hands and do something good, you know, like that that's not... That's not a problem if we let teenagers lead the way, that that actually they have a lot to contribute. And they're like, they're humans. They're part of our culture. So what is one thing that you uh, would like people to know about victories greater than death? And then we can finish up with that. It's the big, crazy space opera that I always dreamed of writing with just like lots of aliens and lots of, you know, mysteries and 
weird technologies and like food that explodes when you try to eat it and like alien death metal. And it's just got everything. It's just, I cramped everything into it. It's like, it's a hundred thousand words, but it contains everything. <laughs> it's like, what are those cookies called that have like every, they have like M&Ms and pretzels and like tire irons and like lint and <laughs> cereal and like. <laughs> it's, it's a garbage cookie. It really is. I re- it's my, I think it's my must personal be garbage cookie. Because it's like everything is. <laughs> it's everything all food. Is this is the food episode. Yeah. So we already did the food episode, but this is the other food episode. So the book is coming out on April 13th. That's this coming Tuesday. So everyone check it out. It's going to be so good and has a beautiful cover and you're just, you're going to love it. So yeah. Thank you so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We're here every other week at all the places where podcasts can be found. And if you like us, please leave a a review. It means a huge amount to us. It makes a huge difference. And if you really want to support us, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. We're also on Twitter at OOACpod. And we're just everywhere. We're all around you right now. We're in the air you breathe. We're a giant energy field that binds all living creatures together. We're a mist network. Just like the force. We're a mist network. And so thank you so much to our incredible, heroic, valiant producer, Veronica Simonetti. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye.